Welcome to Tech Vets, the podcast, a show dedicated to exploring the world of tech and cybersecurity through the eyes of industry leaders and ex-forces personnel. In this show, we're talking to Johnny Mercer, MP, former Minister for Defence, People and Veterans, and a veteran himself. Johnny, you left the services just in time to become an MP, which seems a pretty dramatic change from a military career. Is that what you intended? Uh, so it's it's not what I intended, no. Um, I never voted before I became an MP. I had no interest in politics and a fairly dim view of politicians. So um, it absolutely wasn't my intention. Um, but for me, uh, you know, I think we're all shaped by our experiences and certainly... You know, mine during the Afghanistan years were very formative and I felt that this country uh, needed to do better towards her military veterans. And I thought, you know, there's lots of different ways you can try and influence that. You can work for one of the brilliant charities like Help for Heroes or Walking with the Wounded or you can work in the local authority. But then I thought um, of MPs and I thought, you know, if I had that platform, I'd use it every day to bang this drum so um i thought i'd do it myself yeah so can i ask did was there a kind of um damascene conversion was there a moment when you were a soldier where you said right that's it i need to be an mp i suppose there wasn't a damascene conversion it was something i was continuing to think about for quite a long time um certainly when i was serving i i i operated in lots of different units and and one of them i had fairly uh regular contact with ministers and um yeah my view was that uh these people had a a very sort of privileged position and i couldn't understand why some of them didn't use it more um so that was a kind of residual thought but yeah certainly in uh, in 2012 we lost more of our service personnel and veterans to suicide than we did to the conflict in Afghanistan, which was still, you know, reasonably high intensity at that stage. And I just thought at that stage, something's got to change. Um, I can't believe that was nine years ago now, but uh, I thought something's got to change and I'm going to try and do it. Well, your subsequent career has shown you doing that. Um, Can I bring in you, James, James Murphy, Chief Executive of TechVets. Do you often come across uh, military personnel planning to leave who exhibit the kind of confidence, self-confidence that Johnny does? Yes, I suppose so. I mean, one point that I'm quite keen on making regularly is that it's not a homogenous body. So uh, you take that group of people leaving the military every year, that sort of, you know, 14 plus thousand you're always going to get a very wide range of characters within that. Um, however, one thing that's really sort of hammered home into and developed within all of the people within the MOD as part of the sort of core competencies that the MOD likes to, to focus on is their ability to have an objective, plan to meet that objective and deliver it. So I think what people will have is a confidence if they, if they understand what their mission is, if they understand where they're going, what that pathway looks like. Um, then they will certainly be confident enough about seeing that through. However, the issue that we tend to get is that people don't necessarily have all the information. They don't necessarily have all of the support they need to make that information, that, that more informed decision when they're, when they're building that plan when they leave. So actually, they tend not to have um, the end result that someone like, like Johnny has had or myself or, or you know, many others. You know, there are a lot of people there that are falling through the cracks because what seems like a great idea and they're confident about it hasn't necessarily had the right support um, when, when they've made that decision. 
I think I think confidence is a. If I can just come in now, I think confidence is a really interesting part of this conversation because I wasn't confident at all. Um, and if anything, I've seen overconfidence bring not the sort of results that people deserve from coming out of the military. So I don't, I don't think it's a confidence thing. I, I mean, I genuinely expected to fail at almost every turn. Um, it was just a, a capacity to deal with that failure and be able to sort of stare it down, if you like, that kept me going. It was a, it was a focus on a greater cause, I think, which ties in around, you know, with the service and the, uh, and the nature of service life. So I, I don't think it's a confidence. I think it's a grit. I think, you know, when I've seen really capable people come out of the military and then fall over, sometimes that, you know, more often than not, that has, there's been a degree of overconfidence there. So I think confidence is the wrong word. Assuredness, humility, really, to accept that life is very different outside the military. You know, I did it. Like I said, I expected to fail at every turn. I'm just incredibly lucky I haven't. I've gone, you know, from one, from basically like a ping pong ball and I bounced off and bounced off and bounced off. But it doesn't all end very well. I mean, you know, I, I got sacked three weeks ago in the most public way possible. So, you know, it's, and it's the ability to deal with these challenges, I think, that you learn in the military that helps you so much. Well, I don't mean, um, I, I mean, I think I consciously didn't use the word self-belief because what's strange about you, perhaps, is that you had a very strong belief in a cause, almost a sort of single issue belief. And that's what seemed, if I read your story correctly, to have driven you to have become an MP and, and done the work you now do. I mean, is, is that fair to say? I think so, yeah. I certainly always, yeah, I always have that underlying motivation, I think, that, uh, you know, that, that is, my, is my binary sort of uh, accountability factor, if you see what I mean. So, you know, whatever I do, I try and do it within the boundaries of representing people that I've come here to do. The, you know, being in politics isn't about me. It's not about me building a name or any of that rubbish. Um, and, and focusing on that, I guess, has, you know, sort of, sort of made me, me different in a way and given me the opportunities that, that, that I've had. Um, I think a lot of people go into politics because they want to be someone, whereas I've always thought it was a way to kind of do things and get things done. And uh, I found that, contrast quite painful at times but it certainly served me well in what I've tried to do but I you know it's not been a, a bed of seamless success uh, by any stretch. But it did drive you very rapidly into a ministerial career which you know if you look at some of the blowhards in politics um, who would like to be ministers perhaps it's because they they're overburdened with self-belief rather than belief in something they want to do. I think so, but there's no, you know, let's not pretend there's any sort of meritocracy when it comes to being a minister. I mean, um, there are lots of uh, qualities, I think, that uh, prime ministers look for in their ministerial teams. I'm not sure competence is, uh, is uh, the uh, defining factor, should we say. <laughs> um, James, does this ring true with the kind of people you come across at TechVets who want to transition out of the services? Yes. I, I, yeah, I suppose generally. I mean, we're, we're looking at people who, who they're, they're passionate about something, they're driven by something, uh, and, and cybersecurity and technology does provide them almost that, that mission, that, that being part of something slightly bigger, whether they are defending people's assets or, or identities, or whether they are creating something technological um, to better society. Having that mission and drive um, gives them that purpose. And I think as, as individuals, 
Um, that's something that's relatively standard with most of the military. Most people join the military because they want to be part of something slightly bigger. So I think that's important. And I think what you also find with military, generally speaking, and I am generalizing, is that they are relatively humble and they want to be part of something. They're willing to muck in and it's not always about them. It's, it's about being part of something um, and, and working hard to achieve it. So I think that does stand many of them out from, from some of their peers, their non-military peers. But Johnny, do, do your do your colleagues uh, from the military who have now left? I mean, have, have they? I'm sorry to keep on going in on this point about you know belief and belief in something. But have, have they been driven in the same way, or have they just kind of bumbled into another career? How, how do you describe them? I think they have been driven by by different motivations. You know, we we I think we all have our own different motivational causes, don't we? And you know, some, for example, go into the security and some, some, you know, I know people have gone to cybersecurity for the reasons that James just outlined, an exciting arena, if you like, where you're learning new skills and, uh, you know, it's the opportunity to do something completely different from the military, but at the same time, learn new skills in a kind of, in, in, in a way, a kind of combative environment uh, where you're, you know, you're trying to learn faster and better than other people to uh, protect yourself from cyber threats and things like that. So uh, I've seen people go into different things, but but with the same sort of core values, I think that uh, you certainly learn in the military. I think that's what really stands people in good stead. And those who, I definitely see those who forget those core values fall over pretty quickly. Can you outline what you're doing at the moment? to help uh, veterans in their lives after the military? What, what are you up to? Well, today, not very much. But um, generally speaking, I mean, I, my, um, you know, my, this was my reason for getting into politics, right? So I've tried to champion uh, their causes throughout. I've spoke, I've focused on things like lawfare, which is the uh, judicialization of uh, operations in retrospect and basically going around banging on doors, trying to take money off private soldiers for things that they didn't do in Iraq and Afghanistan. I focused, uh, you know, clearly that is now bleeding across into the Northern Ireland conflict where there's a, a real attempt to kind of rewrite history. I'm not pretending everybody did everything well and, um, you know, right and all the rest of it, but I'm not a fan of prosecuting people in their 80s and 90s just because they can't remember things. I've also, you know, focused really hard on on care pathways and how people actually access help in the veteran space. So there are there is quite a lot of help for veterans now. It's very different to, you know, certainly in the early days of Afghanistan, 2006, 7, 8. You know, there's some amazing groups out there now. The explosion of people like Help for Heroes has been amazing, and 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 the British public have really leaned in to supporting her veterans, but government seems to have this continual mental block. And, you know, when you talk about care pathways and real sort of command and control and um, sort of authentication within the veterans care space, you know, that is a role for government, but government has traditionally had its priorities elsewhere. So I, I obviously managed to get this prime minister to set up the Office of Veterans Affairs. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite prioritised as I hoped. And, uh, you know, but I, I hope with me leaving, that will change. And, um, you know, that, that will be the opportunity that I hoped it was to bring a bit of uh, professionalism to the sector so that, you know, those who are taking their lives and saying there's no help available or struggling to get into employment, um, actually, they know where to turn and they know who to ask for help and they know how to access brilliant you know, trade pathways like you've got with tech vets or, or care pathways when it comes to mental health and things like that. I think I think the vet, Office of Veteran Affairs was, was, I mean, that's a huge success. 
for me, having an office that is there that can really bring those those issues of the day to light, but also start to really concentrate on on you know I hate the term horizon scanning, but those future um, emerging issues that that veterans could be facing. I think that's really really important. And the other point you mentioned though around um, authentication, I think that is one of the most important aspects of our time um, because we are now looking at overload of data. There's you know if you look at you know the service charities they're popping up you know you could have hundreds within a within a postcode and many of them doing the same sort of thing they're all great organizations but having one place where you can come to get i mean i know we have veterans gateway but there's a lot of work that can be done with that sort of single sign-on authentication to make it easier for people to access stuff with a really a really positive gateway that puts people to the right stuff at the right time i think that's something that i would love to see as a next step and i'm you know i'm sure with um you know Everything that's happening, I'm sure that'll be on the on the um, radar somewhere. Johnny, you have, I think I'm right in saying, you have criticised some of the pathways out of the military, particularly charities uh, and uh, and what they do. Is that is that right? Um, I'm not sure I've I've criticised charities per se. I, I think um, I do. I have entered the debate in trying to bring a bit of order to the charity space, where you know, for me certainly between 2011 and 2016 972 million pounds worth of libel funds went into the charity sector and yet at the end of that process we still did not have clear defined care pathways for those who need it it's all right people like me and james talking about all the options available for veterans if you're working in plymouth and you come out the military and you're trying to find, you know, you've left and you don't know people in the military and three years, four years later, you start having dramas with your mental health that, you know, how we mark our homework on that is how easy is it for him or her to access mental health care pathways? And it, it is still too opaque. So, yes, I have been critical in, in some spaces, but, you know, it's only because I, I, you know, I make no apology for being a kind of relentless voice of uh, of the men and women who serve and you know for some of them uh, I'm afraid uh, although there are care paths you know that there is care available accessing it is is still a real challenge and I think there's a duty on um, on charities to work together you know they, they used to sort of use this term of uh, you know cooperation and, and so on as a nice thing at the end of a board meeting right it's now absolutely mandatory uh, because money in the sector is going down so fast, but demand is going up. So, yes, you know, I've definitely challenged the charities, but I wouldn't be critical of them. I think, you know, they've certainly bailed out my generation of veterans over the years after such a, you know, appalling showing from government, really. It's such an important voice to have, though. There's a reason why I, I, I wanted Tech Vets to become a programme within RFEA. Um, and, and, you know, RFEA Forces Employment Charity it is there to provide that employment support. So why would tech vets work independently of it? Why would we not work together to make sure that if people want to come for employment, they can in one place, but then access specific focused um, programs if they need to. And I think that's something that's that's been a bit of a success for us over the last over the last couple of years. But but yeah, I do see I think I see it all too often. There's so many different things popping up. And as a service leaver in you know late 2018, early 2019, I had a five-year plan, and when I left, I was still met with this wall of data. I didn't know where to go, what to do, um, you know, who who would I speak to if if X, Y, and Z happened, um, and it's really difficult to get that. How much of this, Johnny, was your 
I came from your own experience of, of leaving the services. Uh, I mean, how much of that, how much of that can you draw from in your new position of kind of weaponizing the post minister's position? So it didn't it didn't really come from my own experience um, because I I sort of stumbled out of the services and, and into this and kind of expecting to fail at any stage. I did a number of different things. I worked on building sites to raise money for my campaign and stuff like that. So it wasn't really an, <clears throat> on my experiences, but I I have always felt sort of um very strongly for for those who come out and have not been as lucky as me and i i feel that i guess you know i loved serving with these people i saw what we asked them to do and you know particularly the period 06 through to 10 11 uh on operations and i just thought they deserved better than they got it was as simple as that uh and that coupled with a kind of you know the putrid nature of politicians talking a really good game and then guys stumbling around for employment or mental health care. Um, that, that contrast, if you like, really lit me up. And that's what's kept me going for about 10 years now. You, you are extraordinarily driven on this subject. I do have to ask one light question, though. Is it true you um, had a, a job in a Dove soap ad to fund your political campaign? It is true, yeah. Uh, it is true. I was, I was in the shower. <laughs> Gel advert, yeah. And literally, I, ha I have no shame with this stuff. I mean, they gave me quite a bit of money for standing in a shower for four hours, so I'm not, I'm not even sorry. No, that's fantastic. <laughs> is, is it Googleable, or has the Tory party machine made, had it redacted? Man, I don't recommend Googling it. <laughs> Good. Um, can I just go back to that, um, that those days? Because, you know, that moment where you leave the relatively ordered world of the services and you go into another career. And for you, that uh, meant uh, standing as uh, an MP for um, the Conservatives in Plymouth, aware, uh, which at the time was a Labour seat. Um, I remember working for a, a mate, who uh, Adam Holloway, who had come out of the services a few years before, was standing for the first time in Gravesham, and he overturned a Labour MP uh, there, and it was a a magical moment. It was a, it was absolutely terrific. But the stress and horror that led up to it was 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 ghastly. How, how did you cope? I think okay because I was I was very new to it all, right? So so it kind of had that novelty as well, like knocking on someone's door and talking about politics. I mean, the only thing that's worse than that is knocking on someone's door and talking about religion, right? So. Um, I, I, I literally had to, yeah, kind of learn a new way of life. And, and I found, if I'm honest, so, so I fought in Afghan in 2006, 8, 9, 10. So, you know, when I came back, I was just pining for a sort of normal life with my wife and kids. And uh, I just quite enjoyed getting in the van every day, driving to Plymouth, banging on doors, hanging around my wife. And, um, you know, and she's a lot better than me at this stuff. I mean, she would be the real family success story, but, you know, I can't be left with the responsibility of children. So I, I sort of have to go in front of it at the moment. But, uh, she's, she's, a, she's a lot better than me. And, and, and I still think most people in Plymouth actually think they're voting for her, not for me. So um, um, she's the real sort of secret to, to the success, without a doubt. Well, there's a real sense of team in all of this, isn't there? Which, again, I think something somebody with a services background probably gets more than anybody else. And with Adam's campaign, I mean, the most sensible thing he did was bring in a, a Gurkha to run the campaign for him. So, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll trivialise and say all he had to do was walk up and down with a terrier. 
I know a lot of people who do that, who get their old Sam Majors come in and run the campaign. I mean, it is hilarious. You, the, the experiences you'll have. I mean, you know, I know we can't swear on this podcast, but literally someone opening the door and telling you to F off, you know, without you even opening your mouth is, is, a, is a life-affirming experience. You know, they literally can't stand the sight of you, but they've never spoken to you before. Um, you know, all these things are, are brilliant. James, um, I guess moving into cybersecurity in some ways is slightly less risky than uh, than uh, doing what Johnny did. Is that right? Absolutely. You, you can face whatever cyber threat every day, but you never have to open the door and physically face it, which is uh, which is wonderful. Um, but yeah, I think I, I totally I totally uh, see what what Johnny's saying there, and I think when when most people leave that. Semblance of normality is something that is is quite common with, with people seeking, and uh, you know family stuff as well. You know, and I left and straight away increased hours at work. You know, far more than I'd done in the military. But I now I'm working from home. I spend more time with my family than I ever have done, despite working far more hours than I ever have done. And it's it, it does make a huge difference to be able to really understand your home, your local area, you know, and your community, your family. It, it's it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't envy Johnny at all knocking on doors. And, uh, but he has he yeah, has I mean I know I know he's obviously in the room with us, but he has uh, maximised what he's good at, hasn't he? I mean that that seems to be a message from what he's saying. So uh, he can clearly stand on a doorstep and be sworn at and and still walk away, you know, filled with belief in his cause, can't he? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, but 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 again, I think um, the sort of skills that those what we call the soft skills that Johnny would have developed over over his military career is is no different than what most people would have had the ability to to develop. It just depends on the individual. You've got to understand where your strengths lie. You've got to really concentrate throughout your military career on how to develop yourself as an individual and get the most out of your time in the military. But then when you leave, you've got to really, you've got to understand the true self, where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, but you've also got to understand how to capitalize on, on that experience that you've had in the military. And I think that's another area where some people fall down. You know, I was lucky. I had some really good mentors, I had a five-year plan, and I kind of knew what I was going to do. And I, I focused on my few strengths, mitigated all my many weaknesses, um, and and I think that's important, though. That that's really important. John, Johnny, can we can we just go now to to some of the horrors that you campaign on and and that face veterans uh, when they leave? And this idea of your military career coming back to haunt you, um, and I don't know if you would agree with the language, but because some well-funded lawyer can make a name for themselves out of it, um, how do we how do we how did we get into this situation and how did we get out of it? Uh, we got into this situation largely because, um, I mean, it's a multifaceted, it's really common. It's a lot more complicated than people think. You know, so you'll see some pretty average politicians weigh in on this from time to time saying we need this and we need that without really understanding what's going on. I think, you know, the biggest culpability is, is the MOD over the years that hasn't really been resilient against this sort of thing. <clears throat> when certainly when this sort of stuff started in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, just paying out hemorrhaging public money, uh, which drove an industry of human rights lawyers. Um, and, uh, you know, essentially we, we managed to go from from them going after the department to actually sort of going after individual soldiers for things that, that happened. Um, and, uh, you know, that then has had a pretty devastating effect on some of our people. A lot of, you know, a lot of people are fine and just, you know, they, but they'd never come after someone like me. They'd go after someone who was struggling and struggling with their experiences and, 
um, you know, and and uh, essentially what they're looking for is is money. I mean, it's all it's all an industry, right? So they, you know, if you look at someone like Phil Shiner, he actually paid someone to drive around Iraq, um, knocking on doors, saying, "Look, did the British Army annoy you in any way?" Um, yes, I was hit by a soldier on the seventh of March, two thousand six. The MOD can't disprove it, so it pays out, and this is all legal aid, right? So it's basically like a big cash machine. <laughs> Um, built on the backs of our soldiers. Um, I think uh, Northern Ireland is slightly more complicated because, uh, you know, an incredibly difficult time. Um, but I think this principle that, you, you know, where there's wrongdoing, clearly you investigate it uh, and you find out what happened. But I think the idea then that you just keep going and keep going until these people are, are dead uh, is, is probably not the best way to treat your veterans and, and something that I feel pretty strongly about. Is it, as well as the money-making side of it, is there a kind of undercurrent of ideology that's driving this that, as well as trying to bankrupt you, also wants to see the army disbanded? I mean, is, is, is that part of it? I think that I wouldn't go that far. I'd say there's definitely an element that see the British army as uncouth, uncontrolled, unprofessional. You know, you join, join the... It was either the army or prison, you know. And I just think it's so far away from the reality certainly my experiences when i i was serving you know with some really deeply special people um who demonstrated the sort of highest qualities of service to the country um and now i'm in the political sphere and people go on about freedom and sacrifice you know as they get in their ministerial car and go off for a five course lunch in the ribs you know it's uh it, it's it sticks in the core of it so you know, I, I will relentlessly stand up for these people because that, that's my experience. That's the reality of it, right? I don't think there was a, you know, th there's ever been a, a systemic breakdown of values and standards in, in, in the military. I think we've got our difficult people like any big organisation. And one of the things we've done wrong is we, we haven't held ourselves properly to account for, uh, well, over a number of years, really. I mean, we're the only country that served in Afghanistan who still haven't prosecuted anybody for crimes in Afghanistan. You can't tell me we're the only country that didn't have anyone who did that. So, look, there are systemic problems, right? But uh, I think the current state of play where we're just hounding old people till, yeah, till they're dead, to try and, you know, particularly in Northern Ireland, it's a, it's a deliberate attempt to kind of rewrite history. I went out to the court appearance of a couple of soldiers recently and the, the judge, you know, it wasn't even close. It wasn't it wasn't like the judge was, was torn as to what he, you know, he was very clear. He was like, you know, you cannot... This is unlawful. You cannot behave in this way. And it just surprises me that we have to get to that stage before the MOD or the government does anything to protect these people. You know, and those guys have been through nine years of that. One of them, his wife had died in the process. One of them had a stroke. They couldn't even hear the charges. They were so old. Um, and, and they just appeared to be totally abandoned. So, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. James, is it is this something you come across in in TechFest? Companies that simply won't work with you because they consider being services personnel to be a kind of demerit activity? Um, no, because I think businesses are slightly different. Um, you know, this isn't the, the issues that Johnny's talking about are political or, or possibly even ideo ideological groups, right? The, the, the you know or fundamentalist groups, you know, however you want to term them. These these are these are people that that want something slightly different. Um, whereas businesses understand that they have n not even a responsibility. It makes business sense to employ veterans and service leavers. And they're, they're understanding that a lot more now. So, but, but at the same time, 
there's already so many people out there who used to serve in the military that are bringing a great name to the rest of the, the military. So I think, generally speaking, I, look, I've, I've never seen that. I've, had, I've come across a couple of companies who have, you know, asked me questions like, are, the, you know, are, are a lot of them mental? You know, but immediately they're on the back foot and they, they go bright red and they realise that it's just a slip of words. And, you know, and I say, look, I'm thick-skinned, um, but no. And when I give them the actual stats, and Johnny will be all over these stats, but it's, I mean, it's... It's not even that. I mean, it's not even a competition. I mean, the, the, the stats are almost exactly the same levels as what the percentages are for non-military for for some of these um, mental health issues. So, so I think, look, I think, generally speaking, I think we've we've started winning that that battle, so to speak. And, and you know, the amount of companies that come to me very very keen to employ military because they understand that they've got all those that those really cool. Um, soft skills but they also come from a background where values and standards like johnny mentioned is ingrained into them so they're going to be respectful and loyal and they're going to be great team players you know they're going to really be responsible for taking decisions making decisions and and being accountable for that as well but they will work hard and deliver on what you ask them to do and i think that's really important companies can be cowards though can't they yeah, I mean if i could just if yeah if i can just come in there the biggest challenge i find with companies is like like James says, the vast, vast majority are absolutely fantastic. The only pushback I've ever had is from smaller companies who feel like they're taking a risk because the narrative out there is around broken, mad, dangerous veterans, which is, yeah. as James has alluded to, like a million miles away from the truth. Any company that actually dips its toe and employs veterans will often tell you it's the best thing they've ever done. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, you're right, businesses are callous, and that's why people like, like, like uh, Barclays relentlessly go after veterans because they get very good employees who will stick with them show that loyalty that they've been shown and deliver for them over a number of years so so it works kind of both ways i don't think it's callous i think it's you know sort of business sense and i I think it's sensible but yeah the only pushback is from smaller companies who feel they're taking a risk and the challenge is to get in that space and change the narrative around veterans that you know the vast vast majority are, are absolutely fine it's not just business's responsibility either you know, there's a, a lot of the responsibility sits with us to make sure that businesses understand what a military career means, what the what the specific elements within that career, you know, how that translates, because they've never been in the military. So they're not going to understand straight away what someone who's been a, a Bowman communication specialist, what, what does that mean? You know, if they've never used or seen what Bowman co- communication systems are, they're not going to have any clue. But making sure that that are, I think there's, there's an issue at the moment where people leaving the military, they haven't understood their career in the right way. Um, and, and, but that's being worked on. So by the time they leave, it's a bit of a Band-Aid. You know, they're getting a bit of stuff right at the end and they've got to rush to try and translate into something, turn that into some success. Um, otherwise, they're going to be unemployed. Again, that's the other thing. We, we quit our job before finding the next one, um, which, which is quite weird when, for, for non-military people. But, but we have to do more to make sure that these individuals leaving understand what their skills and strengths are and look what we're doing at tech vets is getting beyond the job descriptions and getting them direct engagement with the companies so the companies can explain what they're about and vice versa and that's that's you know really um yielding some success and johnny there's no problem is there with i mean i suppose a, a kind of inept government that's on the back foot will at some stage have briefed you that the best thing to do is for you to be quiet about all this and somehow it'll go away i mean 
the argument there being that if you keep on talking about this, um, then uh, there will a public perception will emerge of the veteran as being a little bit risky. Uh, do, you, do you worry about that at all? Is, is, that, is that a problem or, or am I extrapolating too much? Yeah, no, um, because there's so many good stories out there now about veterans. I mean, you know, look at James, you know, he's come out. He's, he's running this this company now. There's some brilliant people at TechVets. There's some great people in that industry. There's companies like TechVets who do some great stuff. So um, I think, uh, you know, people can see for themselves. Uh, and, a lot, you know, there's a lot of veterans in employment now. So people have their own personal experience of employing a veteran and think actually it's a, you know, it's a really positive thing to do. So, um, no, I, I don't think you can bang on about it too much. I think the problem was we weren't banging on about it positively enough. And a, a narrative was getting out there that all veterans are mad, bad and dangerous to know. I think we're beginning to turn that corner, but there's a lot of work to do. Johnny, can I start to wrap this up and, and just pick up where we are with Northern Ireland veterans particularly? Because I think that's, that's your kind of main focus at the moment, isn't it? Um, what's going to happen next and, and what needs to be done? <laughs> well, the government's been promising for some time some sort of legislation to just bring some integrity to the process. So, um, you know, raise evidential thresholds so that we're not chasing after people who've been investigated already without any compelling new evidence. And, you know, what that legislation looks like, I'm still waiting to see. I mean, it's been promised for a long time and, and obviously it didn't come in time for those two guys in Belfast, so I left the government. Um, I'm hopeful, I'm ever hopeful, but I will just keep going. You know, I'll, I'll run a huge campaign, I'll do marches, I'll do media, I'll do whatever it takes to get something over the line for these people, because I, you know, I, I strongly think they deserve it. Uh, their cause is as just as anybody else's in Parliament. It's just that we, they haven't had a voice, a proper voice for a long time. You know, their voice was not included in the Good Friday Agreement. They, they were not the party who were represented. And, you know, frankly, um, it, it wasn't good enough then. It's not good enough now. These problems are always going to happen. Um, and I'll do whatever it takes to change that. Do you think the government regrets uh, having you as a minister? <laughs> Probably everyone who's employed me regretted it in the end, but uh, not at the time. <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, you know, it depends whether you want people who are going to get stuff done or just sit around, you know, as a soporific jelly warming the seat, you know, for the next person. I, I, I imagine most leaders want people who are going to work for them who are going to get things done. I mean, I certainly would. I quite enjoy having difficult characters in my team's who, who can produce, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world to all get along and, uh, you know, and end up delivering nothing for the people you care about, you know, and there's absolutely no, you may as well stay in bed all day. So, um, you know, I'm uh, obviously, I've made plenty of mistakes along the way, but uh, uh, I'm pretty comfortable with my decisions and, um, you know, we'll keep going. Brilliant. James, can you be accused of delivering soporific jellies to British industry? I mean, yeah, that's what we specialise in. It's uh, it's in the <laughs> Johnny, James, thanks for joining us. For our listeners, you can find out more about TechFets and how to become a member by visiting techfets.co or searching for TechFets on LinkedIn. If you're a business owner or work for a company in the tech industry and want to find out how to get more veterans into your team, drop James Murphy a message via LinkedIn. You'll find all the contacts you need in the description for this post. We'll be back next month with another TechVets podcast. Thanks for joining us.